Well, hi, Cedarview. Welcome back to our midweek devotional refresh. Close-ups of Jesus through the lens of Mark. Call somebody else in the church, email them, get them to join us every Wednesday at seven o'clock at this time. So this is part 31 in Mark's gospel, and we're coming close to the end of the book. I'm calling tonight's uh, little study, The Gathering Storm and the Gleaming Hope of the Cross. We get into now the actual approach to the betrayal of Jesus, events leading up immediately to his crucifixion. Get a Bible, let's study together. First, I want to look at Mark 14, and we're going to pick it up at verse 10. Mark 14, 10 to 16, the betrayal of Jesus. So Mark 14, 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, isn't it interesting, right at that time, the Passover lamb, His disciples said to him, to Jesus, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? 13. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples, 15. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out, went into the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared for the Passover. There's a a question about Judas and the way he betrays Jesus that rarely gets asked. And and to me, it is the deep mystery of the betrayal of Jesus. It isn't, it isn't just that one of the followers of Jesus betrays him. I mean, defection, while it's certainly disappointing and sad, but defection from a group has been a pretty common occurrence all throughout history. What is, what is harder to understand, at least for me, is why the betrayal of Judas, why that act of betrayal is necessary at all. These uh, religious leaders have been wanting to kill Jesus. Mark said that a number of times for quite a while. They know what Jesus looks like. They've had conversations with Jesus. They've met with Jesus. They've had confrontations with Jesus. Why do they need Judas? Why don't they just go, take Jesus, and arrest him? Why is Judas necessary at all? And a couple of things, I think, go into answering that. I mean, the city is certainly swelled to a large size. They need to get, they, they don't want, they don't want to be upsetting the crowd. They don't want the fuss of the people seeing them coming to get Jesus. So they need to get Jesus at a time when the crowd isn't there. They don't want to start an uproar. So they need to find Jesus when Jesus isn't with the crowd 
which will make some kind of inside information necessary. But there's, there's something else. It will look better for the religious leaders if one of Jesus' own followers betrays Jesus. Because after all, then it, then it might look to the crowd like, well, there's got to be something seriously wrong with Jesus. This wasn't, this wasn't just the soldiers. This was, this was one of Jesus' closest followers that hands Jesus over. And it will justify the action of the soldiers and the religious leaders. Maybe they were right all along. So it will have that kind of settling effect. The other thing I already mentioned, I mean, they, they know where Jesus is generally, but the population is, is uh, greatly increased in, in the city. I mean, there has been a warrant for Jesus. John talks about that in John's Gospel uh, 1157. Now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So there's this warrant out for the arrest of, of Jesus. The population was so big. The other thing to notice here under this, this first point is, um, Jesus knew that they were after him. And, and it's obviously very important to Jesus that this Passover celebration with his disciples, that it not be interrupted. I mean, that's that sort of espionage feel. They're going to find a guy. They're going to follow him to his house. They're going to ask the, mat, the, the householder how to have the room set up. It's all done very quietly. Jesus, it's very important to Jesus he is, he is the fulfillment of that Passover lamb. He does not want this time with his disciples at the Passover meal. He's going to be explaining some very important things relating to his death and the new covenant. And he does not want that interrupted in any way. So all of that, all of that uh, sort of secrecy and finding a place that no one else will know about it where they won't be interrupted because Jesus wants to explain how he is the fulfillment of that old covenant. Okay, point number two. Look at this Passover meal itself. Uh, I'm picking it up at verse 17 of chapter 14. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. So would they wait? It's dark. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. So Jesus is the one who brings this up. 19. And they began to be sorrowful and said to him, one after another, is it I? Isn't, isn't, isn't it striking? They're sorrowful and it's, it's, they've got, eventually they're going to conclude that they would die with Jesus, just like Peter. They all do that. But at first, there's this heart searching moment. Me? Is that in me, Lord, that kind of betrayal? Could it be me? Is it possible that, that I'm not as committed to you as I think? So you have this moment of, Really intense, honest self-examination, at least for the moment. 20. Jesus said to them, it is the one of the 12 who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. 
pause. It's not the subject tonight, but just pause at those remarks. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. There's, there's this idea of what's, what's called conditional immortality, annihilationism, that conditional immortality, that, that only the righteous live forever, that those who reject Christ, uh, they're just sort of snuffed out whether it's immediately or after a brief period of time, but they just cease to exist. And, and Jesus speaks of the one who had betrayed him. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. If he's just annihilated, that's the same as not being born. Jesus says, no, no, there's something worse than that. It would be better for this man if he had not been born. Okay, 22. As they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. They all drank of it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So it's my blood. Jesus identifies the new covenant with his death. No one else. Him. He personally, his shed blood. 24, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. What a, what a meaningful time. There's, there's such a, a fulfillment of a number of things here. So Jesus shows him A, 2A, Jesus shows himself to be the only deliverer of mankind. It is his blood, his body, his blood. This is the only one. B, Jeremiah, he spells out the blessings of this new covenant prophetically in Jeremiah 31. If you have your Bible, look up Jeremiah 31, and we're just going to read 31 to 33. The prophet says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. The covenant, the new covenant, it, it's not it's it's not just a continuation of the old covenant. It's not the same covenant. In fact, the prophets, God says, it's not like that covenant. It's totally different. How's it going to be different? 33. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my, I will put my law within them. So it's not just going to be an external set of regulations. It's, it's going to be within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. So it's not just a matter of, it's, it's true, surely it's true, that our debt is canceled, our sins are pardoned and forgiven through the cross of Christ. That's the blessed truth, but it, but it isn't quite the whole truth. The prophet describes this coming transformation. There'd be an inward change, a desire to keep the law, not perfectly for sure, but the heart tilted in the direction of loving, obeying God. 
And this, you know, Jeremiah doesn't use the phrase born again, but it's a perfect description of what John later on will describe as the new birth, a new nature, God's seed being in us, the law being written on our hearts. So, so the new covenant won't just be some kind of legal fiction. There'll, there'll be this inward transformation, this growing inward transformation of heart. Beholding the glory of the Lord, I've talked about it a number of times, Paul writes. We're, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. Okay, so still on that second point, but C. The bread, Jesus breaks the bread, but it's not only broken, it's distributed. The cup, not only poured, they all drink of it. Um, I think, I think what we're meant to see there is there's a difference between provision from God's side and appropriation from our side. It isn't automatic because something is provided that it's appropriated. It's not enough that his body is broken. It's not enough that his blood is shed. Each one in that room, in this, in this picture of Christ's death, each one is made to partake of the bread and partake of the cup. So it, it becomes individual. It becomes personal. This is foreshadowed in a striking passage, even under the old covenant, this idea of appropriation rather than just the blood being shed. Of course, in Exodus 24, I'm going to read this account, the the blood is the blood of an animal. Exodus 24, 6 to 8, Moses took half the blood. This almost sounds gross to us. Put it in basins. Half the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant, the law, read it in the hearing of the people. That's the standard, the law. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. But they're not going to be, of course. Verse 8, Moses took the blood, get this, and threw it on the people. And said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So even even in that old covenant picture of what the work of Christ on the cross would fully accomplish, but even in that Old Testament picture, the blood isn't just held by Moses. It has to be spread on the people. It's a picture. It's a picture of how the death of Christ has to be appropriated personally, individually. Okay, point number three. Look at verse 25. Jesus looks uh, beyond his death and beyond their death as well. 1425, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. It's important, it's important forever to remember that Jesus didn't view his crucifixion, the betrayal his death on the cross that he saw coming, predicted all along, but he didn't view that as just the end, period. The work was finished for sure, he said. But even even before the cross, in this Passover meal, he's very clear to tell them uh, his death is not the end of the story, nor will their deaths be the end of the story So there's this hope right in the middle of the 
Passover meal. Nothing would keep that day from coming. Not his death, not their death. Surely that's important. We get so earthbound in our thinking. Point number four, last point. Look at uh, verses 27 to 31. Peter's foolish self-reliance and Jesus' redemptive love. 1427, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, all of them. For it is written, and here's how Jesus viewed the Old Testament scriptures, I will strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered, quote. Then Jesus speaks, but after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. 30, Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And notice, and they all said the same. Peter gets kind of a bum rap. He, he did kind of initiate this whole thing, but he's not the only one who said this. So Jesus predicts, all of them will fall away, not just Peter. That's in verse 27. Just, just pause and think about that. It must have been, Jesus is called the man of sorrows. It must have been hard for Jesus, all that he had talked about, all that he had come to accomplish. He came to give his life a ransom. He came to do that. He's coming to that moment, the moment of the cross, and he has to look at the ones on whom he has spilled all his teaching and example, the time he spent with him. He has to look at his closest followers at this crisis moment, and he has to admit, you're all going to desert me. It's one thing to be rejected by your enemies. It's another thing to be deserted by your closest followers. So Jesus carries that, carries that in his heart. Peter's weakness, it's not just a lack of courage. I mean, they all kind of shared that, but, but a lack of self-perception. He, he overestimates himself. He doesn't recognize how desperately he needs Jesus and, and to rely upon him. And so it's wonderful. Right in the middle of all this, all they can think about after Jesus dies, they're, they're secluded in hiding, and all they can think about is their, their failure, how they had failed the Lord. It's a wonderful thing that right in that Passover supper itself, Jesus gives that little remark that they'll be drinking that cup again in the kingdom. And so there's this, this wonderful grace where Jesus looks beyond where they presently are in their weak, overestimating, confused selves. And Jesus is able to see the work that his cross will do in their lives and the coming of his spirit. Jesus looks down the road to things they, they don't fully see yet. And there's that wonderful message of hope and forgiveness and pardon and new life in his kingdom. It's a great text. We'll, we'll work through the last few chapters of uh, Mark's gospel, where all of the things that Jesus talked about begin to unfold. 
uh, Sunday, 10 o'clock. I want to deal with, we're going through 1 John. This will be part six. How to know for sure that you're saved. That'll be the topic Sunday morning. How to know for sure that you're saved. And then Sunday night, we're in the series called Soul Food. How we got our Bibles and how to read them. We're going to start with that second part now, a little bit more preparing your heart for a transforming reception of God's word. How you hear it that gives life. That'll be the topic Sunday night at 6.30. Let's pray. We're grateful, Lord Jesus, for these times. Your, your word, Psalm 1 says, your word is like those streams of water and we want our lives anchored right there. Right there, so they bear fruit and stay green, even in times of COVID drought, that your spirit works through your word in our hearts. Thanks for these times when, even at a distance, we can still do it together. Bless Cedarview Community Church. Anchor our lives in your word, in your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you, church. See you Sunday morning. Love one another.